Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. It was uh, a nail-biting time, actually. We were getting down to the 12th hour, the midnight hour, and that was uh, the deadline that uh, Donald Trump had imposed to try to get a deal together for, uh, well, we're still calling it NAFTA, I guess, until this thing gets ratified. But uh, obviously some concern about what was going to happen with trade. And uh, they pulled it off. There is a tentative deal. That's that's what we have as of now, a tentative deal between the United States, Canada, and Mexico, a new name for that deal. And it looks as if everybody is relatively uh, happy with this, at least uh, those that were around the bargaining table anyway. There are still some people that are a little upset about this. Uh, we're going to uh, talk uh, with a number of folks about the reaction and the impact this is going to have. Uh, very pleased to welcome back to the program Mike LeCouture, the Ottawa correspondent for Global News. Uh, Mike, thanks so much for the time on a busy Monday. Good to have you with us today. I appreciate being here. I mean, so what was it like sitting where you, you knew the deadline was coming, and as it, as it approaches, you know, getting late on a Sunday night right now, this is a, a kind of akin to being in Vatican Square waiting for the white smoke to come up, wasn't it? <laughs> it really was. Um, but, you know, anyone who's been around negotiations knows that uh, nothing like a really hard and a, 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 a you know, a dead, drop dead deadline to have a moment of clarity in the room, I think. Um, and that is what that kind of deadline probably brought to everybody around the table, knowing this was going to be it. There was not going to be an extension after this. Um, there were other deadlines that we kind of blew past. Uh, but then coming down to it, knowing that this is what it was going to have to be. And I think a lot of the people who are connected to these talks that I've spoken to knew that it was going to fall around here and not in, not necessarily the timing, but the actual provisions that were carved out and everything around it. Um, but I've spoken to a number of people who have uh, done a lot of these types of deals, done a lot of negotiating. Nobody is really shocked that it come that it did come down to about 10, 11 o'clock uh, on the Sunday night of the deadline day. Um, you have to think that everybody felt that kind of a pressure and that they finally have something. As you said, that relief when the white smoke is finally released <laughs> in the Vatican Square, uh, Saint, you know, right outside St. Peter's, and everybody knows, okay, we've got something. Uh, and as you'd mentioned, you know, on most sides, or at least the three uh, official government sides, everybody saying how good of a deal this is, starting early this morning with President Donald Trump tweeting uh, that it's a fantastic deal, a historic deal, uh, and he has to say that because don't forget, in one month he's got the midterm elections. Yeah. He needed a win here. He needed to go around and say that he got something done, uh, and uh, senior sources within the government have told me they are more than happy to let Donald Trump go on his victory lap uh, and claim that he was the big winner here and nobody else won. Uh, and they'll leave it to sort of the journalists and the analysts to take a deep dive into those numbers and say, you know what, it was actually pretty good for everybody. Mike, were there any signs at all that we were getting down to the short strokes in the last couple of days? I mean, we knew the deadline was there, but but just in some of the reporting you guys have been doing, uh, you and Mercedes from Ottawa and, of course, uh, from in Washington with, uh, with Jackson, that, that I got the sense that, look, there's only one or two things and we're really, really close. They weren't saying that, but there, there seemed to be an insinuation that it was getting near to a, to a finale. Yeah, I had uh, spoken to several sources who said essentially what we weren't seeing is, you know, the proverbial duck's feet under the water going slowly is that chapters continue to be closed uh, in the last few weeks. When you consider that we would report on a chapter being closed as, you know, <laughs> I'd say as late back as January, and that was huge news saying, oh, this chapter has been shelved, this other one's been shelved. Um, and what we were told in the last few weeks is among these sort of intense negotiations, as uh, Minister Christian Freeland had characterized it, they were just ticking boxes as they went along. And we knew that the hardest things would be coming down to the final hours. Um, negotiators have told me that you always leave the hardest stuff to the last moments, and those are the, the final things that will get done. And that is essentially what happened here. And yeah, we did have a bit of an indication of the fact that Canada had swapped out its speaking turn at the um, United Nations with another country, knowing that Christian Freeland could not be there to take that place and that she had to come back to Canada. And especially yesterday when we saw senior government officials huddled at the Prime Minister's office uh, right across the street from Parliament Hill, we knew that that is when it was really ramping up and that we had to have something yesterday. That, there's going to be an awful lot of analysis and dissection of this thing, obviously, over the next couple of days. And and I, I fully agree with you. I mean, 
mean, the, the president's going to want to do a victory lap and say, look what we got. And with midterms coming up in just a few weeks, that's important. But you look at this from our side of the border, Mike, and, and it's uh, it's interesting to note that a lot of the stuff that we seem to be digging our heels in on, uh, we got, you know, the dispute resolution, uh, no sunset clause. They had to modify the, the supply management aspect of it, but it is still there. Yeah, and on that sunset clause, uh, from what we understand right now, it's not the five-year automatic expiration date, but it's more of a 16-year term, and it comes up for a renew every six years. So basically, let's take a quick glance at it every six years, but the hard cap when we have to actually renegotiate this thing, or at least take a harder look at it, is 16 years. So that, you could say, is a win. Even though there is a sunset clause in there, it's a win considering it went from five years to 16 years, so tripling uh, the amount of time in between which we have to look at it. And yeah, to your point, the fact that Canada, um, some would say, only had to give up some on dairy. Now, obviously, for dairy farmers, it's tons because any little bit that we are giving up is chipping away at their profits, chipping away uh, at the sustainability of their dairy farms. But when you consider the fact that at the original Trans-Pacific Partnership, when the U.S. was in it, Canada was ready to give up 3.25% market access to the Trans-Pacific Partnership countries. They did that with the modified CPTPP that the U.S. had pulled out of uh, when Donald Trump took office. Uh, So we're understanding that it'll be more than 3.25%, but it doesn't seem that Canada had to give away that much. And that is, uh, you know, to borrow a term from uh, the the president, the art of the deal, right? That Mm -hmm. is you coming to the table and understanding there's going to be something you're going to have to give away, but making sure you hold on to it at the last minute. And I think Sunset Clause was that for the U.S. and Derry was that for Canada. And they knew that, look, this is where we have to come to an agreement. And they finally did. One of the other elements that uh, I think caught a lot of people's attention, of course, was that I guess it's essentially a guarantee, isn't it, Mike, about uh, about auto tariffs? Because that's something that the president had been threatening Canada with for quite some time, to slap 25% on on cars, auto parts, whatever it was going to be. And it's pretty much enshrined in this deal now that they're not going to do that, isn't it? Yeah, and making sure that he can't continue continually wave that over Canada as a threat. Uh, and that was something that Canada wanted to make sure uh, was hammered out in this. Uh, and really, if you speak to people inside the auto industry, they basically say, look, uh, it was an empty threat on Trump's part because whether he knew it or not, if he did that, it would completely decimate the supply chain here in Canada. Now that you have this RVC, regional value content, uh, it basically means that to sell a car in North America, you have to make sure that there's more content from North America. It really benefits all three countries when you think about it and dig deep into it, something that was extremely valuable to the United States. They have obviously a huge auto sector. Canada does as well, and Mexico participates in it as well. The fact that Mexico brought up their labor standards is a win for everybody across the board as well. So um, the fact that, as you mentioned, that those tariffs are are now a little bit less of a threat uh, is is obviously comforting for Canada. One of the things that has not uh, been hammered out just yet are the steel and aluminum tariffs um, that were slapped on Canada that Trump directly linked to NAFTA talks, but Canada had said they are not linked to NAFTA talks. Now that we have a deal, that will be one of the questions. Do we now have those tariffs and counter tariffs that Canada slapped on the U.S.? Are those lifted? And I think the people in the steel and aluminum business and those industries will be listening to uh, President Trump at 11 o'clock today when he gives his press conference. And, of course, Prime Minister Trudeau and Minister Christopher Freeland when they speak to reporters at noon. Yeah, that steel tariff is obviously very important to us here in the Hamilton area with the steel industry and, of course, up in Sault Ste. Marie. Uh, and I know that it's it's uh, something that they thought they were going to get resolved. Uh, w- what are they going to look for here, Mike? Is it just a sign of good faith that the president's going to lift these, or is that going to require more negotiation between the two sides? It'll probably have to be a little more negotiation because all of this has been uh, quite acrimonious with some personal shots. You heard Donald Trump talk about how he didn't like Canada's lead negotiator, not naming Minister Freeland. Um, then there were some who made a lot of the fact that Minister Freeland uh, was in Toronto at this women's forum talking about uh, taking on the tyrant uh, was the name of a talk in which she was involved. And of course, 
in a video montage leading up to her introduction. It had Bashar al-Assad, it had Kim Jong-un, and of course Donald Trump in there. And while she never named him uh, when she was talking about it, clearly that's where the conversation was going, and that's where the conversation was for a lot of that talk, having watched it. Um, so, yeah, good faith is what they're going to need to see, and possibly maybe they'll let Donald Trump announce it at 11 today that um, you know that they will be letting go of those tariffs. But he probably also wants to make sure that there are assurances that Canada will not allow um, Chinese dumping of steel and aluminum into Canada, and then that that gets into the United States. That might have to be some sort of a carve out or a side deal uh, that gets hammered out right now. That all the heavy lifting has been done with. The old NAFTA, the USMCA, as it's now called. Mike, we talked about uh, President Trump and, and the victory lap, and, and obviously, I, uh, it's not part of the negotiation, but I'm sure it was something discussed around the table. That okay, our guy will make his announcement at 11. You guys can do it an hour later. So they both want their moment in, in the in the spotlight here. Uh, Trump needs this, as you mentioned, because he's got the midterms coming up. But uh, it's not lost on us that there's a federal election on this side of the border, probably within the next 12 months. How important is this to, to the Trudeau government to, to get this thing signed, sealed and delivered? You have to think of how this will be framed now going forward. So the Conservatives have continually uh, criticized Trudeau, saying he's not gotten anything done, he hasn't really passed any legislation. Yes, we're going to have the legalization of cannabis in the next couple of weeks here, but what can Trudeau really carry as a banner going into the 2019 vote? Well, this is going to be a major one. As much as the Conservatives will want to continually criticize um, the Liberals for, you know, they left it down to the last minute, and this was uh, causing a whole lot of panic for nothing. If Canada had just done this, if Canada had just done that, and the Liberal government had done this and that. Well, the fact is, is that now they're going to be able to stand there in the House of Commons and say, look, we went toe-to-toe with one of the most unpredictable leaders um, in, in the free world right now. And we hammered out a deal. Was it an amazing deal? Did we have all of the wins? No, but we weren't going to get all of those wins. The, the Canadian side got the best that they could have with what they had at the table, considering who they were dealing with. And I think that sometimes, um, you know, taking a step outside and looking at this uh, from a, you know a, an outsider's perspective, as we try and do as journalists, you look at it and you go, you know what? When you're trying to deal with President Donald Trump, how would any other party have dealt with this? And did the Liberals do the best they could with the hand that they were dealt? At this point, you'd have to probably say yes, and that is what the Liberals will be doing. They will be going around and saying, it doesn't matter what led up to this, we got the deal done. We have a new North American trade agreement, and this is what they'll be carrying into that election. And he has a year to continually campaign on that and to raise that. And you can be sure the next week will be full of, look what we did, we got it done. Uh, you mentioned the negotiations and some of the bombast that was coming out from both sides to a certain extent, but clearly a lot of it from the White House uh, and a lot of acrimony uh, with some of the comments. Uh, with this deal now, and I'm just looking at some of the tweets from the White House from earlier today, Mike, are we friends again uh, with our fr- our neighbors to the south? I mean, because it, it was a little testy there for a while. It was, and especially after the G7, uh, when you had President Trump saying that he saw the press conference on uh, Air Force One and said he didn't appreciate what Trudeau said, uh, and there was all sorts of personal comments going back and forth, and Trudeau trying to keep his powder dry, but at the same time taking veiled shots at President Trump and you know having to make sure that, to Canadians anyways, um, he was not a wilting flower in the face of this bully from the South. Um, I have to think that, especially given the, the, the tweets that we had seen this morning where Trump congratulated Canada and Mexico, uh, I have a feeling that there's going to be maybe some uh, apple pie coming from the South and maybe <laughs> we're going to send some beaver tails down there <laughs> and a, sort of a, a renewing of handshakes and maybe a little, oh, shucks, you know what, we can be friends again. Let's take down these fences and, and don't worry about it. We're neighbors and friends again, right? Sure, that's uh, that's the Canadian way, right? <laughs> eh? in, in, until the next uh, irritant comes up, then yes. <laughs> Which could well be before the end of the week, you just never know. Mike, uh, it's been a long night for you and an early morning, and I really appreciate you taking the time for us. We look forward to your reporting on uh, Global National later on today. Thanks for this.
Appreciate being on the show. Take care. Mike LeCouture, of course, Ottawa correspondent for Global News. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The day after the uh, NAFTA, well, it's not called NAFTA anymore. I guess we have to get rid of it because we knew that a couple of weeks ago when uh, Donald Trump said, I don't like the sound of that word. So NAFTA is out. Now it's the USMCA deal, as uh, it has been called, and uh, everybody seems to be happy. Uh, let's drill down a little bit and see exactly what we're in for. Marvin Ryder, of course, from the DeGroot School of Business at McMaster University is with us again. It's a busy day for you, too. It, it probably will be by the time we're done. We're looking forward to the text of this being released later on today so that at the moment, Bill, we're still going to be speculating on it. But once you can actually go through it line by line to see what exactly we had to give up to make the deal, I think when the dust settles, we're all going to be very, very pleased uh, with Mr. Trudeau, with Ms. Freeland, that they really held their ground and we didn't have to compromise as much as everyone feared. So what took them so long? <laughs> well, I, I'm going to phrase it to you like this, Bill. I think we were ready to negotiate. I think it took a long time for the Americans to negotiate. The American strategy for much of the last 15 months was, here's what we want, give it to us, period, full stop. There's no middle ground. And I don't actually know, Bill, why America blinked here in the last week or two, but they clearly wanted a deal because they moved. To give you a simple example, um, we said the dispute resolution was a make it or break it for us. In the last 25 years, at least a half a dozen times, Canada has taken the United States uh, to a tribunal. We had a complaint, and in most of those cases, we won. That's also why America wanted that clause to go. So I didn't see where's the middle ground there. We want it to go, and we want it to stay. There isn't like, well, we'll do it halfway. And I think when the dust settles, it will not have been watered down, and we got it back into the agreement. Even the Mexicans who, who didn't fight for this, uh, because they've never filed a grievance under NAFTA, but they're even happy about it. So I, I don't think we're going to have any pushback from Mexico. Whatever we added to the deal, they'll approve. And, and what's interesting about that aspect of it, you talked, and I talked about this last week, uh, in, in Woodward's book, uh, one of the revelations I found astounding was that Lighthizer is a strong opponent of, of that. He did not like it from day one. Uh, which was something he obviously carried with him into the negotiations, but he obviously backed down. Yeah, I, you know, I get where they're coming from in a way. America is always worried about sovereignty, is that don't tread on me philosophy. We're America, stand back, we can do what we want. And their solution had been that you can still file grievances, but they'll be heard by American courts and American judges using American rules. The current mechanism, which remains, we think, still in the new NAFTA agreement, is uh, that there will be a three-person tribunal, one from Mexico, one from Canada, one from the United States, and international law will govern. And this is, in fact, why America lost. They couldn't do just whatever they wanted in the precedence on a world stage. Let's talk about the Sunset Clause, another what we <laughs> thought was a, a contentious point that they dug their heels in. Initially, they wanted a five-year deal. That was it. Uh, it's much bigger than that now. Yeah, so that was, again, Mr. Trump said that here was another problem with NAFTA. Not only was it a lousy deal, but it had been going on for 25 years, so I want to sign a new deal that expires. <laughs> and, of course, his initial idea was five years. Our reaction to that is, well, wait a minute, we've been negotiating for 14, 50 month, 15 months. To have this expire in 60 months doesn't make any sense. And I can actually give credit to the Mexicans. When the Mexicans got their deal with the United States, they got the Americans to move. And so today it's a 16-year deal with a promise to review it every six years. Coincidentally, six years from now would be the time of the, the second American election where even if Donald Trump was reelected, he'd soon be replaced as president. Um, and at that point, you could extend it further. So I think what we've done is we now have a deal that is much longer term with the possibility for more extensions. We didn't touch that at all in the last month. And that's, by the way, as, as we've talked about, this is one of those things that they probably should have included in the first one. I mean, uh, to upgrade or to tweak as, as they were using. Because the, the other one, the old deal, of course, was essentially outdated. That, that's really the, the way, best way to characterize yeah, it. Yeah, you know, not in everything, obviously, but here's a simple example. You know, 25 years ago, we didn't have the Internet. We didn't have all these websites. We didn't have buying back and forth across the borders. And now e-commerce is huge. And there was just nothing in the last NAFTA about that. So... You know, these deals do have to be updated thanks to technological change and otherwise. Uh, now, mind you, Bill, just to maybe um, maybe put a little bomb on all of this, the Canadian government under Stephen Harper had a plan to update NAFTA, but it wasn't to negotiate a NAFTA 2.0. It was really the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and that was supposed to replace NAFTA. Of course, Donald Trump stepped away from Trans-Pacific Partnership a month after he was sworn in as, as president. There's another little lovely, delicious irony here. Under TPP, and, and people forget this, Stephen Harper had agreed to phase out supply management 
investment in the dairy industry mm-hmm. over a 10-year period. Now, shock the hell out of the dairy people, and there were promises there'd be money and cash and transition, but we agreed to give up on it. The minute Trump canceled TPP and said, well, I don't want to be part of that, we took that back out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. So the fact that today we, we probably had to make some compromises in dairy, they are far less, far less than what Stephen Harper was willing to commit to under the Trans-Pacific Partnership. One report I saw this morning I found interesting, speaking of the TPP, uh, somebody who has knowledge, I guess, of the deal, we, like you say, we haven't seen all the details of it yet, says you will be surprised to find out that almost two-thirds of this new deal is a, a total reflection of the TPP deal. Uh, I don't know if Donald Trump realizes that because he's already <laughs> quashed that deal, but it obviously served as a template for the Canadian side. Yeah, a template framework would be another word for it. So, you know, we've already hashed out many of these things at a table. Just to remind everybody, Trans-Pacific Partnership was originally a 12-country deal, but Canada, the United States, and Mexico were part of it. So it had clauses in there that we had already agreed to between the three of us. So as it was coming forward, it would make logical sense to start from that. The Americans always want more, and so some things they wanted. They they didn't like the idea that we were going to protect what we call our cultural assets. That would be radio, TV stations, what have you, both Canadian content, but also around ownership. Well, that's, you know, that's not the American way. Anyone can own anything at any time. And we said, no, we really want to make sure we don't become America North. And we won on that one. We That still is in there. Uh, dairy, again, if you're a farmer and you're listening to me, any movement I know is too much for you. But I believe you're going to discover that Canada, yes, has had to allow a little more American milk in at a free or low, low, low tariff rate. But I think when you actually see the numbers, it's going to go from something like 3.25% of the market to 3.75% of the market. He's not letting, when I say he, Justin, is not letting American milk just wash over us from sea to sea. There will still be some restrictions, but there will be some movement. I, and I know that, uh, you're right. I mean, I've already seen the reaction from some of the people in that industry, and they're they're shocked by this. But I mean, they had to see this coming. Well, again, given that Stephen Harper had been prepared to actually dismantle the entire industry, if that if that had been on the table that we were going to phase out supply management over ten years, and instead what we got was moving the quota on American milk from three point two five percent of the market to say three point seven five, or even heaven forbid four percent of the Canadian market. I'd say you dodged a big bullet here, folks, because supply management is substantially still intact. And also, even on that point, Bill, much of the milk that America wants to bring up here is what's called industrial milk. It's the milk that in Canada you would then turn into yogurt and cheese and ice cream, what have you. Your drinking milk will still likely be Canadian all the way through. It just doesn't make any sense to change that. And and this is not really a, a huge, huge change. I realize any change, if you're in an industry, is bad, but also look at what we got, and this is important for Hamilton, I think within the week we're going to hear a timeline for eliminating those U.S. tariffs on steel and aluminum that have not necessarily hurt us at this moment, but we're hurting the prospects for Hamilton Steel Companies in 2019 and 2020 to have those tariffs disappear in, say, the next 10 days or two weeks. That would be huge, great news for this community. Now, I, I'm looking at media releases, and of course they're saying, well, yeah, those things were not resolved. But let, we have to put that in context, too, though, don't we, Marvin? Because the U.S. side and the Canadian side both said that's not part of the deal anyway. Well, right. So, But here was our concern. We sign a new NAFTA deal. And this looked like this was going to happen on Saturday. But then Trump is threatening to put these tariffs on because of national defense. Well, then what's the point in having a NAFTA deal if he'll just basically ignore it and put these tariffs on? So we have a side deal. It's not part of NAFTA. It's not within the NAFTA agreement. We have a side deal that talks about the auto sector, but also these tariffs, and tries to get Canada into a different position, that if you're going to do this national security thing, the criteria for Canada and Mexico are a little different than the rest of the world. I think we should sleep better. Now, again, how does this work out? What we said to Mr. Trump is Canada pledges to only ship X number of cars into the United States. And that X is about 40% more than we already ship today. So we're not in any danger of seeing current production levels change. It also, again, buys us time. So if in 10 years from now we're getting close to that limit, we can always visit the next president at that point and say, let's change those. But if we get rid of this threat of tariffs, it's just going to be a dramatic change. And by the way, 
you know, Bill, the markets have been open for 45 minutes. I think you're going to see a wonderful day on both the Toronto and New York stock markets. This kind of a deal is really groundbreaking, earth-shattering, and it's the kind of great news the market was going to be thrilled to hear about. The auto sector thing's big, though. I mean, because yes. that, it doesn't eliminate the threat of tariffs, but it certainly blunts it, doesn't it? Blunts it, I think, is the best way to say it. You know, again, any president using whatever cleverness he can find can change some of the rules. But Trump, who'd been using this Clause 232 as a sledgehammer, if I don't like you, it really wasn't national security. I mean, that was the name of it. But it was really, I don't like you or I don't like what you're doing. Slam, I'm going to put these tariffs on. It blunts that dramatically. It doesn't change it for the rest of the world. So if I'm the European Union, who considers themselves a friend, or I'm Korea, or I'm India, who consider themselves friends of the United States, it doesn't change Trump's use of this hammer on them, but it changes it on us. And, and it goes back to what we've said all along. We're your best friend in the world. Why the heck would you do that to your best friend? And I think it now really limits what Trump is going to do to us. You mentioned the markets reacting to this. I mean, that's something that really seemed to get lost in a lot of the discussion about uncertainty. Markets don't like uncertainty. And and this, I would think, is going to go a long way towards calming the waters. Absolutely. And there's a political end to this. I mean, we all know about the midterm elections coming up in the States. Uh, and, and this is something that the president can and probably will at 11 o'clock this morning when he has his press conference, uh, wave up and down, said, I won. I, I, he, he will. This is going to sell great in Wisconsin and, <laughs> and Michigan and New York State. He will, and he'll go to his rallies, and he'll say that. And again, I've got to get Canadians to pull back and say, let Donald Trump have his moment. He'll say whatever he says, because he's always said whatever he says. Just don't you overreact to that. Look at the text. Look at our people. Understand that we had really good people there at the table negotiating on our behalf. And and this this is a modernization of a deal that needed to be modernized. And I'm, I'm not the least bit worried about this going forward. But you're right. Markets hate uncertainty. And, and here's just another variation on this. In about two weeks' time, the Bank of Canada is going to take another look at our uh, interest rates. We've had a lot of growth in the economy this year. It seemed likely it was going to go up, but I also thought they were going to pause because if you didn't know the outcome of NAFTA, how dare you increase the rates in uncertain times? Instead, now, I think with this bit of news, you can pretty much bank on the fact the Bank of Canada is going to increase interest rates another 0.25%. Oh, that's great news. <laughs> there's there's got to be a downside to just about everything here. Uh, what does this do to the Canadian economy, though, and the uncertainty? We talk about what's going on in the U.S., and there were some concerns. I know they, they still maintain that their economy is booming. Uh, it's taken a bit of a hit in the last little while. But does does this calm the waters up on this side of the border absolutely. too? Yeah, absolutely. Both sides both sides of the border are going to like this. And I should actually say three sides because Mexico will like it too. Their economy is no different than ours. They don't like uncertainty. It's really going to be great news for all of us. But, you know, Bill, I want to I position this on a world stage. Canada does come out a winner on this. Canada comes out on the world stage as a country that stood up to Mr. Trump, stood their ground, and got a good, solid deal. They didn't have to go cap in hand and capitulate. And the rest of the world is interested in trading with us. We know China's interested in trading with us. England, if they should happen to secede from the <laughs> European <laughs> Union, which it's looking like they may do, but they would like to have a free trade deal with us. There are other countries out there that want to do this. Canada looks really good as a result of all of this. And so for the moment anyway, we have a window of opportunity. And I think, and I know people always hate it when our, our prime minister hops on a plane and flies around the world, always just taking holidays. But there's an opportunity now for Justin to meet with people in other countries around the world and establish more free trade deals, which would all be great news for Canada. Is that one of the takeaways from this thing? I know Perrin Beatty, who was the president of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce, has already suggested, in hindsight, uh, this teaches us a lesson, I'm paraphrasing, that we can't put all our eggs in the American basket. We need to diversify and get other trade deals. Is, is that one of the takeaways? Well, I'll say yes, but... Uh, I think Parent Beatty is being unkind. Even Stephen Harper knew that we just could not tie ourselves completely to the American economy. Bill, we know that within the next 10 years, the dominant world economy is going to be China. There's nothing Donald Trump can do to stop that. And within another 20, 25 years, India will be the second largest economy in the world. Possibly by the end of this century, Indonesia could be in there, or the Philippines could be number three. So what we have to do today is lay the groundwork for trade to those nations down the road, nations with whom we don't necessarily share a language or a culture. And if we don't start laying that foundation today, we are in danger of being left behind. But having said that to you, Justin Trudeau's 
uh, handling of this matter, Christia Freeland's handling of this matter on the world stage has scored points, and the rest of the world has noticed. And so if we want to go to those countries and talk, they're now much more willing to listen. We are not seen as America's puppet. Oh, you're just going to do whatever they tell you to do. No, we stood up, and we got a good deal. That's, that's admired on the world stage. They keep referring to this, though, as a deal in principle. Uh, yes. What, what has to happen here? Is it, can <laughs> yeah. somebody put the kibosh on this thing yet? All right. So what happens next? Today, at uh, some point this morning, text the actual text of the deal gets released. It gets released to the Mexican Senate. It gets released to the American House of, Com- uh, I mean, House of Representatives and Senate. And they have a 60-day period to hold hearings, suggest any changes they want. Now, the belief is that Mexico will not make any changes, and in fact, their Senate and House will approve it, and the outgoing president of Mexico will sign this deal by December the 1st, which is the day he leaves office and the new president, Lopez Obrador, takes over. Congress, on the other hand, has to adjourn fairly quickly <laughs> to do their midterm elections. Yeah. So we don't believe the American Congress is going to ratify, ratify this. They'll hold hearings, but they will not ratify this deal until some point in 2019. And Canada, I think, again, would be wise, even though Justin's got the majority in Parliament, to just not rush this through this fall. Let us not be the first to sign off on this deal. Let's see where the Americans are going to go just on the off chance some changes come up. So just so everyone understands, the new NAFTA, USMCA, actually is not in effect at this moment. It won't be effective until all three nations ratify it. You're probably looking at May or June of 2019 for that to happen. But then the flip side is it will certainly be done before the fall election of 2019. Justin wants to be able to go out and say, look what I did for you, Canada. Yeah, there's a story today from the uh, the Mexican president suggesting that maybe they could sign this. Uh, he's, I think it's the end of November. Uh, there's a G20 in Buenos Aires, and uh, they said, you know what, with the three of us could go off to a side room there and do this. That seemed a little premature. <laughs> well, you can do that. Uh, I know it's always confusing to people, even with the Trans-Pacific Partnership, for instance, the 11 nations had a meeting, and they all had a ceremonial signature, you know, the nice flowery pens, that they pat each other on the back. But just because you sign it or you endorse it doesn't mean it's in force until your country actually ratifies it. Even today, Bill, CETA, the free trade deal that we've talked about with Europe, is still actually being approved by various nations and subsections of the nation's provinces, territories. It still hasn't all been done yet, even though the European Union has approved it. So they are complicated deals and they take a while to ratify. But normally, if the people at the top like it, the people underneath are going to come on board too. So I'll ask you the same question I asked Michael Couture from Global. Are we friends again now? I think I think we can kiss and make up. I, I, you know, it's like any tough argument you have with a friend. You might need a day or two on your own to recoup. But I would think certainly by Christmas time we'll be sending presents as always back and forth. Well, and, and again, we have to uh, differentiate what came out of the White House on the Twitter account and what was going on in the boardroom. And and I guess if as we analyze what happened over the last year or so. Uh, there was an awful lot of goodwill between an, a number of other U.S. politicians, governors, uh, et cetera, et cetera, right. congressional leaders that uh, that wanted this deal to happen right. and were pushing for Canada to be a part of this. And then, of course, there's that phone call that the prime minister made to the Mexican president uh, just before the weekend, which really seemed to get Mexico on side. Yeah, I mean, we had, we had many supporters in all this. The only problem was that goodwill was starting to get stretched a little bit, Bill. They, they weren't panicked on September 1st, take a month, sort it out, we understand. But as the month was coming towards an end and we didn't seem to have a deal, they said, look, folks, we can't keep this up forever. we got to get something. Can't you do something, Canada, to throw us a bone here? So there was pressure on Canada to come around towards the end, even from our friends, because there was just so much of basically holding Donald Trump at bay that they could do. But Today, signing it, those governors who stood with us, those people in the Senate and the House who stood with us, the Mexican president, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, the mayors, they're all going to say, ha, you see, good, Canada came around, and we have a great deal because of it. Well, we'll see how they spin it. Uh, the White House at 11 o'clock, and of course, uh, up in Ottawa at 12. Thanks as always, Marvin. My Great pleasure, Bill. Here today. Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Interesting comments from uh, the interim leader of the Ontario Liberal Party, John Frazier is his name. And uh, in speaking to uh, some media folks over the weekend, he suggested that uh, Ontario voters actually did the right thing by voting the Liberals out of office. I know uh, many of you will agree with that, but they, I, I believe he's actually looking at, at not just the, the vote itself and you know the, the change that occurred, but maybe uh, you know a lesson to be learned from the Liberal Party. Can parties actually learn from electoral defeats? Let's uh, get Christo Avalos into the conversation, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council and postdoctoral fellow in history 
at the University of Toronto. Crystal, great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks for having me. Kind of an interesting comment from Mr. Fraser, isn't it, that uh, you, you guys did the right thing by turfing us out of here? Yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, it's certainly an interesting tactic. I think it's a kind of a smart one in some ways because, it, you know, with a result like that, it's not as if, you know, they, they lost a couple percent in the cruelties of the first-past-the-post system, booted them out of power from, you know, to a minority or, or something of that sort where, you know, you could say, like, well, you know, it's a marginal shift. They, they, they got trounced pretty badly in the polls. They lost kind of significant support, you know, across pretty much every part of the province, even in some strongholds like Ottawa. Did they, did they lose notable support? Um, so there's no, there's no other explanation but the, the party had a kind of systemic failure and that the voters needed to kind of um, respond in that kind. And I think that, you know, at least, at least publicly, at least as far as you do it in terms of public relations, the best tactic is probably to say, uh, that we deserved our fate, because otherwise, you know, you take the Kathleen win approach, which I don't think worked, uh, you know, the kind of sorry, not sorry, um, and then the voters don't think you've learned anything. And behind the scenes, you might still think the voters were wrong, we actually didn't do much wrong, uh, maybe we don't need to change our course as much as we think, maybe it's how we sell our course, but publicly the party has to kind of admonish itself to the voters. I think that's the, the probably the wise tactic. What is it that causes the electorate, and I'll, I'll just use that whole word there, to, to actually just say, you know what, we've had enough of these guys, because we see this happen time and again. Everybody seems, from a political standpoint, Christo, has to, a best-before date. And, and clearly, I, that, that had long expired with the, the Liberal government. People were just tired of this government. I, I, I know that there's a great deal of, of hatred for Kathleen Wynne, and that was certainly a factor. But there was, there was just, I think, voter fatigue that was a, a major factor in that election. Yeah, no, certainly. certainly not, well, not necessarily voter fatigue, because, the, 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 uh, you know, as much as we'd probably like to see, you know, much closer to 100% of people vote, you know, the, the, the amount of voters were up in that election. I think there was fatigue with the government. And I think there's a few reasons for that. One, you know, over the years, even when premiers change, even when cabinets change, even when faces change, you know, scandals build up. And sometimes those are real scandals, and there were certainly a lot of those. And sometimes those are scandals that, you know, the opposition can manufacture, and those exist too. And, and you know, you can refresh some of those with time, and you can refresh some of those with picking a new leader. That's what the Liberals did yeah. in 2014. Uh, and they were able to make that happen uh, for a variety of reasons, by going from Ginty to win. But eventually time runs out, and these scandals build up, and the opposition parties continue to gain ammunition. And I think what's crucial is that the opposition parties, the longer they're out of power, their scandals are forgotten. And I think when you, when you have a kind of tabula rasa, when you have a blank slate, you tend to read more positively in the people. And I think that Ford in this election, you know, well, who had essentially no kind of coherent platform, people, I think a lot of people at least, uh, enough to give him absolute power under our current system, um, read the positively into the negative spaces, and maybe some of those people are disappointed now, but, uh, you know, all of that combined, uh, you know, just it, it just weighs down on a government uh, over time. This is why in politics you often see that's the case. I mean, you see governments that, that get elected often to majority governments, and then eventually the kind of floor falls out. It happened to, to Stephen Harper. It happened to, you know, the, the, the liberals in the, in the, not, in the from the, the, you know, the Trudeau liberals when John Turner took over, they took a big hit. You know, things like that happen, you know, and it's just the... That's just politics. It, it just makes you wonder even more about, uh, you know, that track record with the Conservatives here in Ontario at one point governed for 42 straight years. Uh, that uh, they, they, and, and I'm, you know, there's been a lot of analysis done, obviously, as to how that happened. I mean, they had strong leadership, uh, but the economy was usually in pretty good shape, of the, you know, in those uh, post-war years right up until uh, they eventually lost in the mid-1980s. Uh, there's got to be a really, it's, it's almost like a perfect storm of excellent circumstances for a government to maintain that kind of popularity. No, certainly. I think that was part of the factor that, you know, the post-war period was uh, extremely uh, you know, there were, and of course there were trends in that. There were there were downturns and upturns, and and you know periods where you know the prosperity was not equally shared and what have you. But it was a time of of general prosperity, and unlike today, it was a time where the prosperity was generally more shared. Uh, that you know workers did see benefits up until at least the mid 1970s, uh, when when co companies did well, workers actually did better too. And it's not so much the case anymore. So in that kind of economy you know, it, you tend to kind of, you know, maybe people are okay with 
you know, not rocking the boat. Uh, another factor is that, you know, in these kind of quasi one parties, the provinces that you see, and this was applied to Alberta as well under the PCs, you almost have a kind of internal party system within the, the ruling party. So, you know, the, the Tories had a kind of Mike Harris wing, but for a long time they were marginalized and they were able to kind of during a kind of period of Canadian history where it was a very left-wing time in, in comparison to today, um, where even the Conservatives would, would, would be supporting, you know, expansions to social programs and things like a basic income. Um, they had those debates within the party. And I think that's one of the things that happened with the Alberta Conservatives for a long time. They had a kind of wild rose wing. Yeah. But then they also had people who would probably be seen as federal liberals, and they would kind of internally fight for who would rule the province, and the election itself would be a formality. Now, the rise of the wild rose breaking apart and then the rise of popularity of, of, of Rachel Notley and the NDP during the, the 2015 election maybe has changed that province. But, you know, for a long time, it was a one-party province that, that operated this internal kind of system. How long do we do we hold a grudge against a political party? Which I guess is the question they're probably asking in the Liberal caucus right now. Uh, I mean, because you mentioned, okay, they, you know, they'll make a change and we'll say we're going the other direction. But after a period of time, you get tired of them. And the, the one that comes to mind, obviously, was the NDP that did hold power in a majority government here in the early 1990s. Uh, I got the sense, even from some of the things I heard in the last campaign, Christo, that uh, there's still an awful lot of Ontario voters that, uh, that don't have any faith in them and don't trust them. Yeah, no, I think that was, that was partially an issue. And I think, you know, the reality of our system is I think that the, the, the two old parties get a bit more leeway than any of the newer parties do, especially parties on the left. I mean, my, my assertion is that we really don't have a kind of left-wing media in Canada. So even the kind of centrist star... Um, you know, the coverage of the NDP is, 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 is always perhaps uh, slanted against it uh, in this province, especially. But beyond that general kind of perception, I think it really depends. I mean, you know, if you look at parties when they get tossed out, they often do kind of recover um, when they change leaders, perhaps they change visions. I mean, if you look at the John Turner liberals, they got thrown out uh, pretty, pretty heavily. Uh, they came back, though, you know, about a decade later. Um, you know, the, the, you know, the liberals got thrown out pretty hard when Diefenbaker was elected and there were conservative leaders that got thrown out and they've always come back. The challenge here though, is that the, the federal liberals as bad as 2011 was, um, never lost party status. They kept their key senior MPs. They had a son of a former prime minister ready in the wake to kind of take over. I don't see that for the Ontario liberals here. And I think that rather than this being a grudge, there's a chance that this is a fundamental change in Ontario politics and that, because I think they chose to support Doug Ford in the second half of the election, you know, attacking the union, saying the NDP was, was, was going to ruin the economy, and, and kind of implicitly giving liberals a permission to vote for Doug Ford, um, they, you know, they might be endangered here more permanently. And rather than this being a temporary timeout for the liberals, we could see, and this is not a prediction, but this is a, a you know, possibility, we could see this be almost a, you know, the fate of the Liberal Party in England, where the Liberal Party here in Ontario would become a kind of ther permanent third party because, you know, they've chosen to align with the forces of conservatism and the NDP has kind of taken up the general progressive mantle. And that could happen to them. But it all depends on where they go with their leader. I mean, they could say that our path is a kind of, kind of as a nominally center-left party who will, who will run elections on the center-left and govern on the center-right. Um, or maybe our position is to run as a fiscally conservative, socially progressive party in an era where Doug Ford is premier and then kind of jettison the left to the NDP and bank on winning, you know, disaffected Tories who want the tax cuts but but want a kind of more uh, presentable premium. So, obviously, the redefinition of parties, I guess the biggest mistake they could say is, is just, oh, this was just an anomaly, we can just stay who we are. Uh, that, that, I would think, would be fatal, wouldn't it? I would think so. I mean, there's a couple things the Liberals think they might have going for them. One... They might feel this was a throw-the-bums-out election, which means that maybe they don't go right back into government next time. Maybe they don't even go back into second place next time. But maybe they, you know, re maybe they bounce back up a few percent just because people come back, and that'll win them back seats. And you know how our system works. And a few extra percent can mean a lot in, in first-past-the-post, depending on how it breaks. Could be a minority government. We don't know. Another factor that might help them is you know, the federal liberals remain strong. In Ontario, you know, there, there are issues there with their popularity. Um, you know, there, there's a sense that we might have a minority parliament that they'll bleed a little bit of support, but Ontario is a, remains strong for the federal liberals. So 
there's a feeling that you know if 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 that if that's the case in 2019 and 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 you know that some of that will rub off on them but i would think you're you're quite right in saying that they need to do something they need to look at what their what their path forward is and i think that again in that election they really had a kind of you know almost a bipolar approach they started running on this kind of nominally left of center uh, you know legacy that Kathleen Wynne had which i don't think was necessarily genuine but it was what they proposed um, and then when they realized they were going to lose, they adopted a kind of strongly anti-worker and anti-NDP platform and really aligned behind Doug Ford's general vision for the province. And it, so it depends on what the Liberals want. Do they want to be the party of economic conservatism or do they want to keep up the kind of general position that Kathleen Wynne tried to do from 2014 to 2018? And, you know, either of those parties has a chance of success, but it really depends on what they do. And this is why the leadership race is going to be so it's so important here uh, for them because it's could it's going to define the vision not just you know is the leader a good leader are they a good speaker and manager and whatnot but what's their vision for the party in the province and what does that mean you know in 2022? Well, we'll find out I guess as time goes on. Christo, always a pleasure to get your insight into this. Thanks so much for this today. Thanks so much for having me, Christo Avelis, uh, of course from the University of Toronto. All right, I want to bring John Malloy into the conversation. John's been a guest on the program before. Of course, he's a former Ontario cabinet minister in the McGuinty government, uh, practitioner in residence at Laurier's Political Science Department, and assistant professor of public ethics and coordinator in the Center for Public Ethics at Waterloo Lutheran Cemetery. Uh, John, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you back on the show today. Oh, it's great to be on. Let me ask you, it, when, when there's a monumental uh, failure and, and, and defeat, uh, such as the Liberals experienced in the last provincial election, what can they learn from that, John? Well, I think the first thing they have to do is realize that the voters are boss. And uh, if the voters said, we don't like you, then uh, you can't go around and say, oh, gosh, it's, uh, it's too bad that the voters didn't get it right or that the voters aren't smart enough to realize what a wonderful vision we had. You have to uh, take a big slice of humble pie and say, we got to rethink it. And and how do how far down that road do you go? Do, uh, is is the discussion? No, we're we're good. This is this is who we are. And we need to tweak this, or do you simply say, look at it's about time to refashion this whole party, the whole outlook here? I think that the 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 confluence of both the fact that politics has been turned on its head uh, internationally, and the fact that we got such a drubbing at the polls, I think that the, the two actually could work in our favor. I think we have to start thinking about a different way to do politics. How do we reach out and somehow make sense of a very divided tribal world that's out there? I personally think there there's a desire for some voices that are going to say, hey, how do, we, how do we bring people together? Because so much of what's happening on both the left and the right is all about driving people apart. And I'm, I'm hopeful that the provincial liberals have some room in, in the center, have some room to be a truly radical center party, as we used to like to call ourselves, and find a way to bring people together. Because everybody's just playing their, their part these days. You know, I'm on the left, I'm right, you're an idiot. I'm on the right, you're on the left, you're wrong, you're an idiot. And I think people are getting frustrated. When our previous guest, Christo Abels from the U of T, was just talking about uh, the, the, maybe one of the concerns here is that uh, the, the liberals bounced around too much, a little bit to the left, a little bit to the right, etc. Uh, do you need more consistency? Is it about time to redefine the values of, of what that party should be? I'm not sure if it's redefine. I think it's choose a lane. Uh, I was, uh, listen, I, I worked in the last campaign for, I had some friends running, I, I voted liberal, no one's shocked by that, I'm a former liberal cabinet minister. But the fact is, I wasn't sure what the Liberal Party stood for anymore. I mean, we, we seem to be all over the map, and I think we can, we can move forward and say, look, uh, this is what we believe in and be consistent in it. And I think maybe, you know, I, I say this half-tongue-in-cheek, but just even having a, a consistent position, it doesn't even matter what it is, just having a consistent position, as I say, a bit tongue-in-cheek, I say that, actually will give us a leg up. When uh, the Conservatives got taken to the woodshed way back, the federal Conservatives, uh, and down to, I think it was only two seats they had in the, uh, the House of Commons at that time, uh, that attempt to rebuild that party actually ended up fracturing the party. You had elements on the right that decided to end up actually the Reform Party and, and form their own stitch, and, and the Conservatives were left out in the cold for the longest time. Uh, with the polarization that's going on in, in politics these days, John, is there a, a chance of that happening with Liberals too? I mean, you've got the obviously the NDP way over on one side, you've got the Conservatives on the other. Well, it's certainly a danger, and I hope that it doesn't happen. 
and maybe it's it's all about thinking about and if you excuse the, excuse the cliche how to do politics differently because i look out in the world these days and you know obviously our thoughts always go to south of the border but i think within canada too there's there's something strange going on out there people are redefining themselves or redefining their attitude towards politics there is this huge tribalism that's going on, but at the same time, I think there's a real desire for a leader or leadership that's going to pull people together. And hopefully there's a way to, to sort of approach it all differently and not fall into this left-right split, because it could. There is a danger that our party could fall apart. I was at the, the meeting on Saturday, and there were those that uh, truly believe that the platform that we had going in in the last election was the right way to go, and there were those that say, no, we move too far to the left. Hopefully we can bridge that gap. How long does a, a party like this take uh, to get out of the penalty box? I was just referring to the NDP loss in 1995, and, and it was still obvious from the, the, even in this last campaign, John, that still a lot of people have a lot of animosity toward that party. Uh, because of the Ray days and all sorts of other things that were going on in these days, too. Is is this a two-minute penalty, or are you going for a ten-minute misconduct here? I think the rules have been thrown out the window. Uh, we saw with Justin Trudeau going from third place. I remember uh, looking at some poll results, uh, the historical poll results. I mean, he was, he was going to come in third again. I mean, this was leading into the last election. I mean, just a few months before, he was still in third place. People were talking about Prime Minister Tom Mulcair. And he came from behind to get a majority government. So I think anything is, is possible. I think the liberal brand, although the liberal government has, provincial liberal government has been sent to the woodshed, I still think the liberal brand is, is strong. Obviously, our federal cousins help. But also, I think most people like to think of themselves as middle of the road. And if the liberals can come forward as a little bit thoughtful, as uh, a party that wants to unite people, a party that's trying to bridge some divides, a party that isn't just lashing out all the time, uh, I think I think they could bounce back, or maybe not. I mean, we're just not going to know, and, and, you know, the rules are being rewritten every day. Leadership's obviously got to play a part in this, too. Dynamism in the leader, and you, you talked about Justin Trudeau and his success in the last federal election. Uh, and, and like him or not, I mean, Doug Ford had a, a certain aura about him, too, that certainly appealed to, to voters on the right. So who they choose to lead this party is obviously going to be a key factor in, in just how long they're in the political wilderness. Oh, definitely. Although my uh, advice, you know, free advice worth everything uh, you pay for it is that they should take some time. Take some time to do a little bit of behind-the-scenes rebuilding, get some organization in place, raise a bit of money, and then once that sort of basic infrastructure is there, use a leadership convention as a way of strengthening it up and raising the profile of a leader. If the liberals, the provincial liberals, appointed a leader or elected a leader six months from now, uh, no one would even know who they were by the time the next election comes. I mean, there's a, a an opportunity as we head into the next provincial election to have a little bit of a splash with a, a new leader, give the party some time to choose that individual, and have that leader have some resources in which to, uh, you know, carry the flag. John, always a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks so much for your insight today. Great, thank you. Take care. John Malloy, of course, former Ontario Cabinet Minister. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.